Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Exchange-traded funds are an easy way for investors to buy into a basket of stocks. The last few years has seen a proliferation of ETFs that offer investors a panoply of different indices, themes and strategies. This week, we look at the weird and occasionally wonderful world of niche ETFs. I want to know which of these funds is worth our time, in what environment they might outperform, and how best to incorporate them in our portfolio. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, what's the difference between ETFs and ETNs? Okay, let's get into it. If you actually add up all the different equity ETFs and all the different equity mutual funds, there are more than the total number of individual stocks in the United States, which is crazy. We've gone from looking for the needle in the haystack amongst stocks to looking for the needle in the haystack amongst ETFs. <laughs> yeah, I think there are thousands in the UK and probably more than that in the US. But of course, it's been so successful that you want to slice and dice the markets many different ways. So I think it makes sense to have more choice. But certainly in the US, you're much better served. And a lot of the funds that we'll be talking about today are US-based. And I guess we should also stress, none of this is a recommendation. Probably not the stuff for your core portfolio. Yeah, I mean, this is strictly fun portfolio stuff. And a lot of it is quite expensive as well. So I think that's something to bear in mind when we're going through the list. Yeah, it's definitely good for the fund managers. And it's great to tell a story. I mean, a lot of this is just brilliant marketing. And I think you've got to hand it to the companies that create these funds. And the tickers are just pure poetry in some cases. I'm a sucker for a good ticker, Robin. (laughs) So maybe let's start off with maybe some of the more plausible ETFs. And I've called this Buffett on a Budget. So these are things where it's trying to mimic the strategies of some successful active managers. Now, the first one I've come across is with the ticker MOAT, M-O-A-T, and it's from Vanek. It's Morningstar's US Sustainable Wide Moat ETF. The idea is that really you're looking for something which has got clear blue water between itself and its competitors. Yeah, so there are five criteria which they use, I think, to select which companies have wide moats and are difficult to compete with. So the first is switching costs, which is just a measure of how expensive and difficult it is for a consumer to drop one brand and move to another brand. So <coughs> monopolies, <laughs> I think, without using that term. It's true. The second is a measure of intangible assets. So we basically mean brand value there. So things like Kellogg, for example, I think it's one of its biggest holdings. Yeah, because you're going to buy Kellogg's cornflakes. You're not going to buy the own brand supermarket, despite the fact it's the same thing in the box. <laughs> <laughs> there are only so many things you can do to corn. And then we've got network effects, which is a measure of if the service gets more valuable when more people use it. So for something like Google, where they're running an algorithm-based search engine, the more people that are feeding it data, the more powerful it gets and the harder it gets to compete with. Then we've got the cost advantage. So some companies are just able to produce their product or service at a much lower cost than competitors, so hard to compete with. And then we've got the ability to make efficient scale, which is basically saying it's not worth competitors entering the market because it's already been cornered by a very efficient company. And I see year to date, it's down 20%. (laughs) (laughs) That moat is doing really well. So yeah, I think a lot of these, you hear the narrative and the way you should always think about it is, okay, it says that it does this. Is that something that's going to necessarily be a theme or an approach to investing, which is going to outperform? And in 99% of the cases, the answer is probably no. But still, it's a nice thought that, you know, you can buy these companies in a kind of algorithmic way rather than paying a fund manager to do it. 
So is this one passive or active? It's tracking the Morningstar index, which I think is in a sense active because it's using subjective judgment of their equity analysts to determine which of these criteria different company meet and do they have a wide moat. So it's kind of blurring the lines between active and passive because all they've really done is take the active choices and outsourced it to the index provider. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a bit of a nonsense to say you can sort of bottle the magic of Warren Buffett by a load of equity analysts at Morningstar. There's a reason Buffett is so successful. It's he's unique. And the fee for this one is 0.49. But that's actually pretty low compared to some of the others we're talking about, but well above what you'd usually (laughs) pay for a passive fund. So in the US, I mean, if you're paying more than about 0.2 or in the UK now, then I'd say that's expensive. And you know what, Ramin? There's actually a global version of this fund, because Moat is just for the US, and that's called GOAT, which I like. And I'd be tempted to buy just on the name. Greatest of all time, brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, the GOAT fund. (laughs) Okay, I like the next one. This is Knife, the Fallen Knives ETF. Yeah, N-I-F-E. So you've probably heard this pearl of wisdom, which markets often bandy about, which is that you don't catch a falling knife. In other words, if a stock's falling or a fund's falling, you don't buy it because it's probably going to fall further. So this one deliberately is to catch those falling knives. Yeah, brilliant. What could go wrong? (laughs) It's a circus act turned into an ETF. So definition is stocks that have fallen significantly, but with the financial health to support future outperformance. So this is another kind of Buffett strategy in a way, because he started his career by looking for, I think what Charlie Munger, his partner, called the cigar butt investments, the companies which were really beaten up, but maybe you got one more puff left in there and you can make a profit. <laughs> so it's a bit like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And in, in the credit space, there's something called the fallen angel approach to investing. And there's actually a fallen angel fund where you've got companies which have been downgraded from investment grade to junk status, but potentially they could make it back into heaven, into the investment grade space. So this is like that, but for equity. And there's a lot of different funds which kind of try and play on these themes that we've all heard of, these tactics. So there's also MNA, which is the IQ Merger Arbitrage ETF. And that's again something Buffett occasionally dabbles in. We know that last year he smartly bet on the merger of Activision Blizzard. It was suspicious, I think is the word you used, Michael, at the time. No, it's not suspicious, Roman. He's just a very big gaming fan and knew that this was going to be a good bet. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen him on Call of Duty. Wazza is his uh, handle. (laughs) But the idea with merger arbitrage is that if you're going to buy a company and the merger goes through, it pushes up the share price of the company that's being acquired. So by judiciously choosing those potential targets for acquisition, you can generate very high returns. Of course, if it falls through like Twitter did, then the share price falls. So there's a kind of binary outcome there. Yeah. So the blurb says this is investing in global companies for which there has been a public announcement of a takeover by an acquirer. But it really depends on the economic environment as well, doesn't it? So as we enter this kind of shaky, volatile period, when interest rates are going up, then the funding of these acquisitions becomes more expensive. There's less risk appetite for the acquisitions. So I think, you know, that one potentially is not such a good one in this environment. It's really interesting, though, isn't it, that you can now do things which were the preserve of hedge funds not so long ago. Yeah, and this is something you could pay a hedge fund manager a lot for still. So I think if it is successful, then lots of hedge fund managers would be worried about this. And there's another one which has launched pretty recently, actually, called Night Shares. Have you seen this, Roman? Oh, I love this one. Lots of people noticed that if you actually buy stocks at the close of business, 
and then sell it at the open of business, then there's actually a huge amount of return, which is made in that kind of in-between market. Oh, well, that's interesting. So you only own the stock when the market's shut and you don't participate in, you know, the craziness of the day. Yeah, they call it the night effect. And, you know, historically, people have noticed that that has been something which has generated a lot of return. So it'll be interesting to see how well this one does, because, I mean, you could say that now that it exists, it's probably going to get rid of that night effect. But still, it'll be interesting to monitor. That's the paradox, isn't it? As soon as you allow people to trade the effect, the effect should, in theory, go away under the efficient markets idea. Yeah, if there was a big enough fund, if this thing really grows, then that'll probably get rid of the effect. The ticker for this thing is NSPY, the night shares 500 their version of the S&P 500. But this isn't something which you could do very easily yourself because you'd have to have a lot of discipline to trade at exactly the close and the open. So it, it is kind of useful from that point of view. Is this one of the few which could potentially be a core holding in place of a S&P 500 fund? I wouldn't trust that. You know, I'd never do that. <laughs> Too novel. Well, yeah, and a lot of these things, they back test well, but then the minute there's a fund launched, you can almost guarantee that it's not going to work. <laughs> okay, so there's another nice one, which I like, simply because of the ticker again. It's DSCF, the Discipline Fund, which isn't what you might think. Oh, this sounds up your street, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> It could be dodgy, actually, just looking at it. But it's not that, no. It's to determine the allocation between the equity and bond sleeves. I like that. Oh, I love it when they throw in a word which just sounds like active managers have really thought this through. <laughs> <laughs> the Discipline Fund relies on an internally developed algorithm that assesses perceived risk in the equity and bond markets. The allocation never exceeds 70-30 in either direction. Yes, yeah, so they basically own a slug of bonds and a slug of stocks, and it can vary between 70-30 in either direction. They've got this magical algorithm which tells them <laughs> the best allocation at any given time. So you've just got to trust that they've got a good algorithm to determine that. So I'm not convinced by that one, I've got to say. But how would you go into that early? If in like five years' time you look at it and go, wow, it has actually outperformed, they've managed risk well, you'd go, okay, maybe their algorithm does add alpha. But early on, how could you possibly know that. But even later on, if, if it's a black box, they could change the algorithm willy-nilly and you wouldn't know it, right? You just see the history and just hope that the algorithm hasn't changed. But I'm sure they're probably tweaking it all the time. Or the algorithm could literally just be a monkey throwing darts. <laughs> yeah, kind of Monte Carlo type approach. Yeah. There, I think there were jokes about monkey ETFs where it was just random choice. I mean, I think half of these are that. <laughs> <laughs> but only in retrospect. So if those are the more plausible ones, and even those don't sound that plausible, <laughs> let's move on to some of the real niche stuff. So as you know, Roman, ESG investing, environmental, social and governance, being a good investor, a well-meaning investor, that's a big theme these days. But what if we don't like that? What if we're just really into the bad stuff? Well, there are some brilliant ETFs in this space, which are decidedly anti-ESG. So, for example, the most obvious one is VICE, V-I-C-E. This is the Advisor Shares VICE ETF. And this seeks products and services that people find pleasure in, regardless of economic conditions. So it's all the dodgy stuff, right? So alcohol, tobacco, gaming, and other VICE-related business activities. Porn. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's the things people get addicted to, basically. And let's monetize that. But all of the things which are shunned by ESG funds. Now, actually, the logic behind this isn't that bad because ESG has certainly had its day. 
it's certainly made it difficult for some people to get capital. So there is a depression in the price of non-ESG companies. So in theory, if ESG kind of fades as a trend, then these companies could see their valuations increase. Definitely. If they're underpriced now, you'd think that mean reversion would pull them back up. As long as they can generate profits, which many of these things are, of course, very profitable because, you know, if you're selling an addictive product, that's obviously going to be something which is pretty easy to sell. You know, it's an interesting one. I think of all of the ones we've seen so far, I think that's one I kind of like the prospect for the best. You just got to put your morals to the side. Well, this is the problem. I think some people just would have issues with that. There's a similar one with the ticker BAD, and I love their slogan. I went on their website and the slogan is, what was bad is now good. <laughs> it's a very slick website as well. It's the slickest of all the ones I looked at. Yeah, you've got to respect their marketing. So they're, yeah, again, into betting, alcohol, cannabis and drugs. All the good stuff. What do they mean by drugs? Well, in brackets, it says pharmaceuticals and biotechnology. That's not that bad, really, is it? Maybe they just needed more stocks to buy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a problem with some of these. They might be struggling. They're really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of choices. And for that, for example, we've got cannabis ETFs. Now, the one with probably the best ticker is YOLO. Brilliant. You Only Live Once, which seeks long-term capital appreciation by investing in both domestic and foreign cannabis equity securities. Wasn't there another one, which was TOKE? <laughs> really? I didn't find that one. Yeah, the Cambria Cannabis ETF is called TOKE. I don't know how I would choose between YOLO and TOKE. <laughs> I'd probably have to diversify across both. <laughs> They probably all hold exactly the same stocks. Well, there isn't, again, much to choose from in this space. So, you know, that was a popular fad. And cannabis stocks have had a terrible time, haven't they, over the last year or two? Yeah, really well marketed. Lots of people believed in it because the narrative was brilliant. Yes, it's been legalised in many different states in the US. And now, yeah, terrible performance. And similarly, in the betting space, there's iBet. That's the ticker, the sports betting and gaming ETF. And that, I think, had very high valuations because sports betting was being legalized in certain states in the US. And so people were piling into these stocks. And then, you know, it hasn't lived up to the promise. Yeah, that was a similar ethos behind that one. So I bet is pretty much halved over the course of its existence, which is since November 2021. Yeah, a lot of funds get launched at the very peak of the market, don't they? Which was around November, December 2021. Well, this is the trouble with narrative investing. You know, people crowd into a theme because it's popular. And often that pushes up prices and it reduces your return long term. So I think a lot of these, if I was going to buy them, they'd be in my market crash shopping list. You know, if markets are depressed, that's the time to buy these, if you believe in the theme. And ironically, I think that's when a lot of them get closed because the <laughs> assets under management falls significantly. <laughs> that's right. So they're sort of counter-cyclical. They launch at the worst time and <laughs> get out of the market at the best time. <laughs> but of course, the asset manager makes plenty of money in the interim. Oh, of course. Another one, which is great, is YAL. YAL? People can't say that in the UK, can they? YAL? But this is the God Save America ETF. Sorry, this is one you like. I just like the ticker. Okay, okay. <laughs> So this has just been filed with the SEC. It hasn't been launched yet, but the idea is that it buys anti-woke equities. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Anti-woke, yeah. So that wouldn't buy, say, Disney recently because Disney got in trouble in Florida for disagreeing with kind of a strange law than don't say gay law in Florida. 
the state of Florida under Republican leadership was trying to take away Disney's privileges. Because basically Disney manages the laws kind of for its own theme parks. Like the Vatican. <laughs> yeah, they're like <laughs> the Vatican of theme parks and they can kind of do whatever you want. <laughs> the trouble is we can't see the actual stocks it's going to invest in. So it's going to invest in 30 to 40 companies. The market cap has to be at least 1 billion. It aims to invest in companies with a track record of creating American jobs and incurring capital expenditures within the US. So it's very domestic focused. But the thing about the S&P is that it's 60% of its revenues are generated internally in the US anyway. So the US is kind of quite a closed ecosystem in the equity market, at least. It's interesting that that implies that they wouldn't buy a company like Apple where the manufacturing is primarily done in Asia. Yeah. But it hasn't yet launched. So I don't know, is there anything we can buy that's launched? Yes, we've got the MAGA ETF, Make America Great Again. It's politically responsible investing. Is it? Is it really? MAGA <laughs> politically responsible investing? It's made up of 150 companies from the S&P 500 whose employees and political action committees are highly supportive of Republican candidates. And coups in America. So it's kind of a proxy for political donations then. That's interesting. That's surprising, isn't it? That there would be a way of screening for companies which do that. Can I go short this ETF? <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was an employee at, a, at an investment bank, we always used to joke about getting short options rather than going long the company because I remember the share price at the time was tanking and that didn't go down well with the management. <laughs> what, the company you worked for? Yeah, you could get put options on your company just because you don't believe in it. I don't think the compliance desk is going to clear this from him. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back onto the themes. So there's an interesting category which you've created, Michael, which is generations. So this is old and young. So it's basically you versus me. Yeah, so there's three ETFs I found which looked interesting. There's MILN, M-I-L-N, which is the Global X Millennial Consumer ETF. Now this says it invests in companies that have a high likelihood of benefiting from the rising spending power and unique preferences of the millennial generation. Avocados? Yeah. Is that what it is? Doesn't have any avocados in it that I saw. But it has a broad range of categories, it says. Social media and entertainment, food and dining, clothing and apparel, health and fitness, travel and mobility, education, employment, housing, home goods, financial services. Now, it sounds like that's just everything to me. Why is that unique to millennials? This is what I was going to say. I think I use all of those services. Potentially health and fitness, not so much. <laughs> You're still young <laughs> at heart, Roman. I mean, there's another one, ZGen, which is Generation Z ETF. Oh God, what's Generation Z? So that's the one after millennials, I think. So invest in companies that were born after the internet and whose use values and disruptiveness and innovativeness align with Generation Z. Am I Generation Z? No, it's the opposite. Generation Z is like younger than me. Oh, Lord. Okay. What am I? Where's my ETF? Oh, here we go. Aged. <laughs> iShares Aging Population ETF. There we go. <laughs> so what does that do? So it's an index composed of companies which are generating significant revenues from the growing needs of the world's aging population. So that's 60 and above. So I'm almost there. So that of the three sounds like the one which would have the most potential to me because the long term trend in the West is for an aging population. Forget millennials and Gen Z. Yeah, even China, if you look at China's demographics, it's aging really rapidly. It's nowhere near the dependency ratio you see in the West, but it's still increasing so fast. 
So what kind of thing is it? Stair lifts? <laughs> it's probably way more broad than that. That's the thing with all of these kind of themes. Like you say, the narrative sounds amazing, but can they actually pick companies that are focused enough on that trend to benefit? Okay, here we go. So Ultragenics Pharmaceuticals, CGen Healthcare. So there's a lot of healthcare. In fact, the top 10, yeah, it's all healthcare. So is this a proxy for a pharmaceutical and biotech ETF, really? It looks like it. So healthcare is 52% of it. Financials 35, because old people have money, of course, and then almost nothing for the other sectors. So you're taking a bet on pharmaceuticals and finance. Rich people who need drugs to stay alive. Yeah. So those are the two sectors. I mean, it does sound plausible to me. That's the one that I will keep in my back pocket for a market crash, I think. But again, you know, if you're overpaying for these things, everyone's been buying into this aging theme for a long time. That's why pharmaceuticals have such high valuations. So it's hard to kind of beat the market just by buying these thematic funds. Of course it is. We all know that. But, you know, they've got good tickers, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, that's all we care about. So new economies. Here we go. The one I like best is smog. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. The Vanek Low Carbon Energy ETF. So this is basically renewables, isn't it? Wind, solar, hydro, hydrogen, biofuel and geothermal but also things like batteries, electric vehicles. So it's trying to clear the smog rather than generate the smog. This is one of the ones I got burnt on. I think it was iShares Global Clean Energy was the one I bought. And the ticker for that's INRG. What happened to it when you bought it? It tanked. So I bought it about 30% above where it is today. I want you to create an ETF of your fund portfolio and then I'll just short that. I'll perform <laughs> amazingly well. <laughs> of course, that's one of the ones everyone's joking about, which is the inverse Kramer ETF. Yeah. Because anything that Jim Kramer says, basically just short. <laughs> and he's got an uncanny ability to do this. So if you find something with negative alpha, right, and you can short it, you've then got positive alpha by definition. Yeah, that's right. To be short, something which is always wrong is just as informative as being long something which is always correct. So I think, you know, if he can generate negative alpha, he's a genius. <laughs> a very special kind of genius. Unfortunately, a lot of the negative alpha is often down to fees. That's true. You'd still be paying fees even if you shorted. And another one which I really like as a theme, I'm such a nerd when it comes to space, is UFO. Right. I think that's just brilliant. So this is the Procure Space ETF. But it sounds like a conspiracy theory ETF, but it's not, right? <laughs> yeah, so it's not about Roswell. It's actually about buying anything to do with satellites or launch capability or GPS. So a lot of the companies it buys are in that kind of space. No pun intended. Yeah, it's very good. But still, I think that's an interesting theme. Things like SpaceX, which many people would like to invest in, is unlisted. So you can't invest directly in it. But if you buy something like Scottish Mortgage in the UK, they do buy unlisted stocks. So they own some SpaceX. The thing when I think about a theme like space exploration is, yes, it's obviously going to grow and be an increasing part of our economy. But then you would have said the same about airlines, right, 100 years ago, that it's just going to grow and grow and grow. But then I saw Warren Buffett say that throughout history, in aggregate, anyone investing in airlines will have lost money. Yeah, I think that's the problem, which is that, in theory, a new economy will be disruptive. But how profitable is it is always the question you should be asking yourself. And ultimately, every kind of new exciting technology runs us into the usual buffers. There are competitors, there are costs. If it's very innovative, then you have to pay staff a lot because you have technical expertise, which you have to pay a lot for. So really, it's not just enough to have a really interesting theme. You have to have high profitability, high margins, 
an emote. You know, that's what we started off with, wasn't it? Yeah, that's the thing. There are going to be hundreds of different companies trying to compete in the space space. And you have to pick the two or three that are going to be the Apple's, Amazon and Google's of it. But often the disruptors become the disruptees. If there is something new that comes along, which is better or new technology, then effectively you can get completely destroyed. But I love the creation of the ARC space ETF. And one of its biggest holdings was John Deere, the tractor company. Yeah. I just thought that, that was brilliant because there isn't that much you can buy. Yeah, because they can only buy publicly listed companies. Yeah, so if it's an ETF, it has to be liquid, whatever it buys. And if it's unlisted, it can't touch it. I know there's another ETF with a similar ticker, but it's quite different. The ticker is Moon. Oh, I love this one. This is the Moonshot Innovators ETF. So the idea here is that you go for really innovative US companies, which are at the forefront of changing our lives today and tomorrow. And you go for the companies which are most innovative and potentially most disruptive. So they choose 50 companies which have the highest early stage composite innovation scores. <laughs> They've given it a good branding, haven't they? Yeah. But I think this will run into the same problem, which is what we've just discussed, which is how profitable are they? Yeah. And that is what Cathy Wood's ARC Fund is trying to do, is investing in those companies. So I don't see why this would perform any better than that, unless they're somehow better at picking stocks at the right time. Or their fees are lower. So the fee is 0.65%. That's the expense ratio. That has undercut Cathy Wood by 10 basis points. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to say basis points. Sound like a real investor. <laughs> well done. So that's just a hundredth of a percent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and another one that was really popular during the meme craze was Buzz, because these are stocks which have a buzz around them. It's a good link from Moon to Buzz. Oh, I like it. Buzz Aldrin. 75 large cap US stocks which have the highest degree of positive investor sentiment and bullish perception. But what's interesting is how they actually mine these companies. They look at things like social media, news articles, blog posts, and then they kind of mine this data for whichever companies people are saying positive things about. So if we look at the latest holdings, I mean, originally it was things like GameStop, for example, and things like AMC, the movie theatre company. In fact, AMC is still top of the holdings. It makes up about 3.5% of the fund. We've also got things like Apple, that makes up 3%. GameStop is still there, 3%. Twitter, I can't believe that's positive. Things like Tesla, Snap, Amazon. Yeah, I mean, it all relies on how good their so-called sentiment analysis is. So I've worked in companies before where you sign up to this service and it gives you like a sentiment, positive or negative score for every post you make on social media, like how are people reacting to it. And I'm never convinced it's that accurate. But if it was and you could get on the meme train early by seeing what was going to be the next stock which everyone on Wall Street Bets was going to go for, then yeah, maybe that would be a profitable strategy so long as you churned the ETF frequently enough to get out of the top, right? And the problem I think at the moment is that despite many people being positive about GameStop and AMC, the share prices don't reflect that positivity. And because the valuations were so high, driven up by the narrative, these are the companies which have sold off the most. So this thing's been completely crushed in terms of returns. Even if it did generate somehow long-term alpha, it's going to be a super bumpy ride along the way, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is by definition something which won't weather economic downturns. So this thing peaked in November of 2021 and it's halved since then. So pretty devastating if you'd have bought into the buzz at that point. So in periods of euphoria, this is probably a good thing to buy because buzz is what drives equity during periods of euphoria. But 
during periods now when there's a kind of reckoning, evaluation reckoning, you know, that's pretty disastrous. I mean, maybe you could think about it as a hyper-momentum strategy. It's trying to jump on the momentum bandwagon before it's even showing up in the stock price, right? Yeah, so it's like beta on steroids. And there's a whole other grouping, really, of these ETFs, which is around food and hospitality, a sector which we all know because, you know, we're eating every day, right? We're going out to restaurants, we're staying in hotels, and there's a lot of different ETFs. We were basically just competing on who can have the best ticker, I think, rather than what's in <laughs> oh, the Oh, there fund. are some crackers, yeah. In fact, crackers would be a good one, wouldn't it? You've got to have it four letters, Roman. Oh, yeah. So the first one, interestingly, is an ETN. So we're going to talk about that in the dumb question of the week. So we won't talk about it now, but cow goes for livestock. So this is futures contracts in live cattle and lean hogs. So very specific. Oh, lean hogs, yeah. I don't like chubby hogs. <laughs> yeah, that's hard, isn't it? Lean hogs. And I know there are two ETFs which take different approaches to the food industry. So there's EATS, E-A-T-Z. Oh, very now. Finger on the pulse. Yeah. <laughs> Roman, do you know what their slogan is? Allows investors to put their money where their mouth is. Yes. <laughs> put it in your fun portfolio, guys. And this is investing in restaurants, bars, pubs, fast food, takeout, food catering, that kind of thing. So it's the established restaurant industry, the advisor shares restaurant ETF. And then on the flip side, kind of, you've got food. That's the ticker. And that's the Rise Sustainable Future of Food ETF. So this is more kind of sustainable food solutions. I don't know what you'd even call it. <laughs> well, they say it's companies that are accelerating the transition to more sustainable food production systems, consumption patterns, and safeguarding our nature and ecosystems. But it has got John Deere in it again. You know, that crops up everywhere. But things like uh, Beyond Meat as well. Yeah, it's, it, they're pitching it more in that space, aren't they? It's the kind of equivalent of the smog fund, but for food. I have tried a McPlant. Have you tried it? No, I've had a Greg's vegan sausage roll. How's the McPlant? McPlant was very good. I was really surprised. You know, I thought, well, it's just going to be a gimmick. But in fact, you wouldn't really know. I mean, it is different in terms of texture and flavour. But most of the burger is kind of masking the taste of the meat anyway. <laughs> meat in inverted commas. That's right, yeah. I didn't realise there was actual meat in those burgers before. <laughs> And then we've got kind of in the hospitality space, we've got beds, advisor shares, hotel ETF. Roman, does it end with an S or a Z? <laughs> Z, of course. Then I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> You'd also like this one, Michael, Cruise, which is the airline, hotel and cruise line ETF. Yeah, that should be included in your aged portfolio. Yeah, that's right. Pharmaceuticals and cruises. So that's cruise with a, a Z as well, yeah. It's interesting, Carnival has been completely hammered by the pandemic. I mean, all those cruise companies are absolutely smashed and I think we're on the verge of needing to be bailed out, right? So this one is down by 81% since it's pre-pandemic price. So it really is looking like it's on the skids. I think some of the issue was they were seen as cash cows and had therefore geared up the balance sheets, a lot of these travel companies and then, you know, when demand got absolutely crushed and people couldn't travel in the pandemic, the debt servicing became a real, real problem. I suspect Cruise is also being fairly hammered. So I think this would definitely come under the category of a recovery play. <laughs> so it only goes back as far as 2021 in July. So they must have launched this as a kind of recovery play ETF. But since then, over the course of this year, it's fallen pretty sharply. So, yeah, not much sign of recovery yet. 
But I guess ultimately this is something that's going to come back. People would get back on cruises. It would be my worst idea of a nightmare from hell. Yeah, me too. I can't imagine ever wanting to cruise. I'd buy an ETF that just invested in Tom Cruise films. That'll do all right. Yeah, that would be good. Or Penelope Cruise. Yeah, just an ETF which sort of diversifies across actors called Cruise. (laughs) This is why we'll never be fund managers, Michael. (laughs) Now, something which will do well this year, of course, is something which gives you some kind of hedge against risk. And I've had lots of people ask me about these, so it's kind of interesting to talk about them. Tail is the one people often mention. This is from Cambria, which has lots of really interesting innovative ETFs. And this is one which buys out-of-the-money put options on US stocks. Now, those are going to pay out when stock markets fall. And it actually buys more puts when volatility is low, when they're cheap, and fewer when volatility is high. So it does adjust its purchasing strategy so it's not too much of an expensive way of hedging. So what's the difference between this and just going short the broad index? Well, it also has things like intermediate-term US treasuries. Now, those would have sold off hugely over the course of 2022. So that bit of it would have lost money this year. But I guess, you know, it's going to give you the kind of safety of the treasuries, which usually are negatively correlated with equity, but not during periods of high inflation. But the puts are fairly reliable. You know, those things will, by definition, pay out. So it's probably done a pretty good job this year. So the problem with buying these puts is that you're continually having to pay premium to buy the protection on the downside. So gradually, this thing over time will lose money. So it's not a long-term investment, I don't think. Is that what you call a negative carry trade? Yeah. By definition, it's got negative carry because you're having to fork out for the premium. Maybe they use some of the income from the treasuries to pay for the put options. Roman, I don't think you're giving me enough credit for saying basis points and negative carry in the same episode. (laughs) I'm very impressed, Michael. You sound like a real pro. So yeah, this thing hasn't really lost a lot. There was a bit of a sell-off from March to April. But over the course of 2022, it's pretty flat. So that is a hedge, and that's the design of the fund. But if you'd have just had cash, you know, that would have been a better hedge, because that also kept its value, and you don't have to pay carry costs for it. There's a fund if I was going to do this tail risk strategy that I'd rather invest in, purely because the ticket is, see ya! Oh, I didn't get that. (laughs) I only just got it because you said it. CYA. So this is the Simplify Tail Risk Strategy ETF. It's for hedging diversified portfolios against severe equity market sell-offs. It invests a substantial annual budget in highly convex equity hedging strategies. Ooh, convex. I like that. (laughs) So convexity means that when things sell off, it sells off by a little bit less. So those are the kind of ways to potentially hedge against the so-called tail risks. There's a fund which I came across which... If you think the tail risk is going to come from natural disasters, so hurricanes, wildfires, floods, earthquakes, that kind of thing, there's a fund with the ticker FEMA, which is, of course, the federal agency that's in charge of disaster relief in America. And it's the Procure Disaster Recovery Strategy. And it's trying to go for companies that benefit when nature throws its worst at us. So if there's an earthquake, presumably lots of houses have to replace windows. So maybe it would be things like glaziers. <laughs> You're just guessing, just guessing. What are we looking I'm at? I'm just guessing. <laughs> So it's got Fujitsu, Enghouse Systems Limited, Artesian Resources Corporation, 
So this is I actually like because it's at least going for companies which I don't know. If it had just got a load of Google and said, yeah, people are going to be Googling more when there's a disaster. Because <laughs> that's what a load of these funds do. They just say their theme and then you look at the top holding and it's Google and Apple. So a lot of water companies, Middlesex Water Company, Amma States Water Company, Mo Glaziers, <laughs> Floor and Decor Holdings Incorporated. There we go. So you have to redecorate if there's a disaster. Oh, you got there in the end. But most of it seems to be about providing clean water. You're just concerned about making your house look nice again. Well, you've got to, you've got to tidy things up. I added a category which you didn't have, Michael, which is crazy risk. That's not like you, Roman. Or is this more of a warning to people? Well, warning, yeah. This is a kind of Cassandra-type category. So this would be things like highly levered funds, obviously. We've done a whole episode about leverage, why it's a bad idea. And there's a three times long ARC Innovation ETF in the UK. So if ARC wasn't volatile enough for you, then this thing will triple that volatility. And guess how much it's down year to date? Oh, 78%. (laughs) (laughs) So why buy it? So they've got a list of four things. Magnify your exposure without the need of a margin or CFD account. Trade with your local broker in your currency, physically backed, simple, traded like any other stock. So this one trades on the London Stock Exchange. I'm amazed the regulator allowed it to exist. The annual management fee for this thing is 0.75%. And there's probably a built-in margin fee as well, which is Fed funds, the overnight rate, plus 1.5%. So you're basically being milked for fees while you take this hugely leveraged punt on a really speculative fund. It's toxic and has so many red flags that, you know, I just think it's amazing that it exists. Is there anything even riskier than that? Oh, there is a good one, actually. Now, this is in the fixed income space, which people don't usually associate with a very high risk. By fixed income, you mean bonds, don't you? Fixed income is bonds, yes. So normally you think of bonds as being safe, but this thing is purely highly speculative corporate bonds in the U.S., Now, I assume this CTF actually is designed to be a building block in a larger portfolio. So you wouldn't have a large allocation, but it's only triple C rated companies. Now, I don't know if people are familiar with credit ratings, but, you know, it goes all the way from triple A down to triple B. That's all investment grade. And then you go from double B down to single B and then triple C. So triple C is basically a company that's just about to default. The probability of default is about 25 to 30% over the next year. So these things are really toxic. And if we enter a new cycle of higher defaults, this thing's going to get absolutely destroyed. But it's called XCCC. But it's a diversified portfolio of these terrible junk bonds though, isn't it? Yeah, in America, they've got a huge junk bond market. So you can diversify across many different sectors and it is diversified across many sectors. So here's my question. Is this just a bet on the directionality of interest rates? So if interest rates are falling, there should be fewer defaults and this fund might do okay. Whereas if interest rates are rising, companies are going to struggle more, this fund will suffer. Well, it's a combination of things. It it will be interest rate sensitive because it's fixed income. But I think what's more worrying is its exposure to credit spreads. And what we've seen over the course of this year is credit spreads widening. That means that you're getting an additional income to compensate for a higher risk of default. But if you are a holder of the bond already, what it effectively means is that the price is falling. So much more than it would for a risk-free bond from the US government. So I think what you're also buying with this is the risk of default. And you will have significant losses during a period of higher defaults. 
The trouble is that the corporate bond market is in kind of two states. It either is in a kind of high default rate state, which is usually what happens during a recession. So we're likely to enter that state now. Or it's in a kind of quiescent state, which it's been in you know, over the last 10 years, really. So I think people misjudge the risk of these funds. So that's why I think it's toxic, because on the face of it, it looks like it's really high yield. It's paying you a very high yield at the moment, for example. But that's because it has a very high risk. And we're about to see those risks realised, I suspect, as we enter a potential recession in the US. So I think this one, again, is in the kind of crazy risk category. Okay, Roman. So to wrap up, I'm going to throw three ETFs at you. Now you tell me, one, are they real? (laughs) Or have I made them up? And two, would you invest in them? Okay, first one is Pets. P-E-T-Z. And the blurb is, Pets seeks to invest in companies that stand to benefit from the rise in ownership and humanization of pets, the adoption of fresh and wholesome diets for pets, growing demand for pet healthcare, and the valuable contribution pets make to our overall mental health and well-being. Well, you see, I'm a sucker for pets because of Teddy. So I can see there'd be a huge market for this. So yeah, I believe this one is is a real one. And would I buy it? Maybe in my fun portfolio, I would, yeah. Well, you're correct on both counts. You should buy it and it is real. Okay, brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) And I suspect that's done really well during the lockdown. Go on, number two. Number two is Plop, P-L-O-P. Plop seeks to invest in companies involved in the sanitation, soil remediation, and wastewater management services. (laughs) Let me finish. And further, the provision of clean water through industrial water treatment and purification strategies. Now, they've done a good job of marketing it, but I think this one is not real. It's true, it's not real. But there are clean water ETFs which you could consider in its place. And the the final ETF is not actually an ETF, it's an ETN, and its ticket is COC. COC is a livestock ETN that trades an index compromised of poultry and chicken broilers futures contracts. It shouldn't be allowed under the trade descriptions act. Roman, what do you reckon? Is it real? And would you buy it? Is it real? I can't believe that's real. I mean, who would ever use that ticker? <laughs> but would you buy it? No, I wouldn't buy it. No. <laughs> okay, it's true that it's not real, but it's an educational opportunity because interestingly poultry and chicken broiler futures contracts used to trade, but now you can no longer buy chicken futures, one of the only livestock that you can't, because there isn't enough price volatility, apparently, to make it worthwhile. So there you go, education. A chicken's low vol. I didn't know that. Yeah, because you can grow them throughout the year, and it's quick, unlike cows where there's risk involved. Oh, interesting. There we go. If you want to learn more about investing in funds, ETFs, and the difference between ETFs and ETNs, then that's something we discuss all the time on PensionCraft. You can learn more about that by going to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, what actually is the difference between an ETF and an ETN? So with an ETF you are effectively giving your money, putting it into a fund, which is then invested on your behalf, and it's traded on the stock exchange. Now, you're not taking any counterparty risk with the fund manager. Effectively, you're still the beneficial owner of the stuff in the fund. They're just a kind of sponsor of the fund, and it's just their job to oversee the assets. And if they go bust, it doesn't really hurt you at all. Whereas with an ETN, It literally is a bond issued by the sponsoring company. Oh, interesting. So you're lending them money. Really, you're taking their credit risk. And so you've got to be really careful about who you lend your money to. Because if they do go bankrupt or if they screw up, 
then you could get the value of the ETN getting hugely out of line with the index it's supposed to track. Now, really, all it is is a guarantee from the issuer that the price of the fund will stay in line with the index that it's supposed to track. It's only as good as that promise. So you've really got to trust the company that's issued it. Yeah. And really, it shouldn't just wait for a bankruptcy. It should reflect the credit spread, right? If they're getting a riskier credit rating, then the ETN should price in a kind of risk of default. And these are just structured notes. What that means is it's a derivative, which essentially means that you provide the capital to a counterparty and they, in a contract, specify a payoff at some point in the future. So it is a structured note. And that means in the event of a bankruptcy, you'll just be in line with the other creditors, hopefully a senior point in the line where you'll get paid before everybody else, but often not. So, you know, you could lose a substantial amount of money. Yeah. I know that Lehman Brothers did have a suite of ETNs under the Opta brand, which when Lehman defaulted, they were obviously all delisted and investors eventually only recovered nine cents on the dollar on average for their ETNs. And Bear Stearns as well had a similar thing. It had ETNs, which didn't pay out. But things can go wrong other than default. So for example, Barclays really screwed up this year with their ETNs. So it had two really popular ones, VXX, which tracks VIX, short-term futures, and oil, which was supposed to track the price of oil. Now, both of those were affected by a huge screw-up on the part of Barclays, Because the way this thing works is they have to apply to the regulator, the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, to get kind of shelf registrations for all the stuff they're going to issue over the following year. But because they made this huge mistake in 2019, they lost their kind of preferred status as a company which could issue these shelf registrations, they're called. And they turned out to have issued $15 billion more than they were allowed to. So they suddenly noticed the mistake and in March 2022, and they suddenly had to stop issuing new units of these ETNs. So effectively, it became a one-way market where you could have redemptions, but no creations. So what happened was that the share price exceeded the net asset value on these contracts. So, you know, if the company screws up, these are derivatives and it can go badly wrong. So personally, I'd never touch an ETN. So here's the question. Why do people invest in ETNs when there's ETFs available? Well, they do offer pretty close tracking, almost perfect tracking, potentially, if it's got a derivative inside it. What, whereas the ETF can vary? Yeah, there can be a tracking error for ETFs. So perfect tracking might be one reason. You may not be worried about the counterparty credit risk. You might think, oh, this company's completely safe, but I'd be wary of that. No company's completely safe, are they? The other thing is I think it does offer access to some unusual and novel markets, which perhaps you couldn't get through the ETFs. Yeah, it would be an exotic market, like you say, like volatility, for example. The thing is, though, retail investors can buy ETNs, and I'm not sure everyone knows the difference and realises they're taking this credit risk. What a difference a letter makes. (laughs) Yeah. Both trade on an exchange, so it seems to be very liquid. It seems to be like an ETF. And like you say, I think people just don't realise the difference. But still, you know, I'd be really, really careful about buying ETNs. And particularly in this market where we are seeing lots of dislocations and potential crises coming to light when markets fall. 
Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Keep sending us your questions at mhr at pensioncraft.com and we'll tackle them in the coming episodes. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.